0: Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea, and we will be in chapter number 12 tonight, the book of Hosea, chapter number 12. Actually, we're going to pick up uh, at the end of 11, because verse 12, I think, really belongs to the chapter 12, verse 12 of chapter 11. You remember, in chapter 11, we... We heard the heart of God when he said this about Israel. He told them, I will never give you up. I mean, they had become one of the most evil nations on the earth, and yet the Lord says, I will never give you up. Uh, And he said in verse number 9, he said, I will not. I mean, he's been talking about his wrath and how he's going to pour out this judgment on Israel. And then in verse number 9, he says, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. In other words, I won't totally destroy Israel. They deserve to be destroyed, but I won't totally destroy them. But that raises a question. How can a just God allow a nation to become so evil, especially a nation that is made up of his people. I mean, the very apple of his eye. How could a just God not in the state they were in? And we've been given, you know an accurate description of their state in these first 11 chapters of Hosea, and it, and it looks a lot like the United States of America today. Maybe Judah would, would be more representative of where America was. Judah had a hundred years or so to go before they were. Uh, taken into captivity, but Israel was in a terrible state. Uh, an entire generation had been raised up that didn't know the Lord. And so how could God, who is just, allow them to continue on it in any form? Well, he answers that also in verse number 9. The Lord says that he is God and not man. In other words, I can do things that men can't do. You remember after Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, Peter said, you know, Lord, I mean, if that guy can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus said it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for anybody to get saved. But remember, he added something there with Men, it is impossible. It's impossible for us to save ourselves. But with God, all things are possible. So God says to Israel, look, I I can save you because I'm God and not man. And then at the beginning of chapter 11, he gave us that great verse there where he gives this prophecy, I believe, about Jesus Christ. And it's quoted in Matthew chapter 2. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in the immediate sense, that refers to Israel, but it also refers to Jesus Christ, who God would send as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, but also for the sins of Israel. So that's how God could be both just and the justifier. Now, but now... He gives us that great hope uh, in the first part of chapter 12, but beginning, back, beginning in verse number 12 of chapter 11, he goes back to this, his anger because of their sin. And listen to what he says in verse number 12. This is where we left off last time of verse, chapter number 11. He says, e- Ephraim has encircled me with their lies, and the house of Israel with deceit and I think he's talking there about the temple of Israel is full of deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. So what he's saying there, the northern kingdom has encircled me with their lies. All, everything that they speak about me is a lie. They don't really know me. And the house of Israel is filled with deceit. So the prophets of Israel, the false prophets of Israel, were speaking false things about the Lord. And they had spoke so many false things about the Lord that he was encircled by these lies. And so they really didn't know the true and living God. Even if they wanted to know the true and living God, he was encircled by lies. And so their lies basically had turned him into something that he was not. And so God sent his prophets... And his prophets, who were the true prophets, and he told the nation to either repent or you will be judged. But instead, they listened to the false prophets. They didn't listen to the true prophets. But here was Judah now, who was still walking with God to some degree. They still had a relationship. They still knew something about the true and living God, the Holy One who is faithful. When he says the holy one who is faithful, you could add to that, the holy one who is faithful when we're unfaithful. and The holy one, the one who is perfectly righteous when we're unrighteous. The one who is always faithful when we're unfaithful. You know, Jesus put it like this, that, he, that, that the Lord won't uh, extinguish a smoking flax, flax or break a, a, or break a bruised reed. In other words, if we'll give him some resemblance of obedience, some resemblance of love and repentance, then, then, then God can work with that. But the problem with the northern kingdom was, and, and there still was some resemblance of that in the southern kingdom, but the problem with the northern kingdom was they weren't, they weren't even a smoking flax anymore. Their fire had been totally put out. They were, their reed was broken. And it was, really, it was really, I mean, it was torn down, and there was really no hope for them. And so he says in chapter 12, verse 1, he goes back to this, this uh, theme of judgment. He says, Ephraim feeds on the wind. What's that remind you of? What's that re- when you hear the, they feed on the wind, who does that remind you of? Something we've, we've studied recently, the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon used that, Solomon used that term wind to refer to what? I mean, he, he, he used it to refer to, to something that was fleeting. He used it to refer to what? He used that word over and over again, vanity. In other words, they were, they were grasping at the wind. Everything that they did was vanity. When you grasp the wind, you don't come up with anything. And so they were, they were, they were holding on to fleeting things. Their entire lives were involved around food and drink and sex and entertainment. And and all of these temporal things, they were grasping for temporal things, things that didn't matter, things they really couldn't hold on to anyway. He says, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. Also, they make their covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried off to Egypt. Their oil is carried off to Egypt. They're exporting to Egypt. They're making treaties with the Assyrians. Who were the Assyrians and who were the Egyptians? They were their enemies. I mean, and they, they were so foolish. They thought they were so much wiser than God and that they didn't need God that they could take care of matters themselves. And what they had done, they, had done, they, they, they were like a, a foolish little child. They'd gone out and made treaties with the very people that were set on destroying them. Sound familiar? I was talking to Ryan a while ago. Do you see where the Ayatollah said today or yesterday that that he was sending in a wave of Iranians into our country across our borders uh, as uh, sleeper cells to attack us if we ever go to war with them or give them any kind of grief. I mean, this is the, co- this is the country that we've supposedly made a peace treaty with. I, if you look at the things that the, that the United States exports, you realize we export oil to Egypt? We export refined gas to Egypt, and we buy it from Saudi Arabia? is that, is that all of that not foolish? And, and uh, that's what they were doing, something very similar. Verse number 2, it says, The Lord also brings charges against Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. So, you know, back in verse number 12, you look back at verse number 12, God had something good there to say about Judah. But now he says the Lord brings a charge against Judah. So Judah, don't You know, you're listening to this prophecy, don't get so smug. You're next. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to be punished too. And then he talks about Israel, the entire country, in the context of Jacob, this, this forefather of, of the nation Israel. He says that he will punish Jacob according to his way. And and he's going to use Jacob here in this, this chapter a couple of times because in the loins of Jacob, when Jacob was living on this earth, was the nation of Israel. And really in some ways, because he was one of the fathers of faith, we were in his loins too. And so the way God dealt with Jacob is kind of the way he deals with Israel and kind of the way he deals with us. And one of the things that God... One of the things that God did with Jacob, what he sowed was what he reaped. In other words, remember what he did uh, to his brother Esau? He stole his inheritance. How did he steal his inheritance? By deceiving his father. And what Jacob sowed later on, he he would definitely reap when he was deceived. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But according to his deeds, he will recompense him. What you sow is what you reap. And he's saying to the nation of, just as Jacob sowed what he reaped, the nation of Israel is going to sow what they reap. And guess what? You and I are going to sow what we reap. That's in the New Testament. That's not some Old Testament principle. We do sow what we reap. We sow to goodness and godly things, we will reap blessings. We sow to evil, we're going to reap curses. And that's New Testament and that's Old Testament. And and if you look at Jacob, I mean, here was this guy who from the very beginning struggled with his fellow man and he struggled with God. And that's a picture of all of us. And that's a picture of the nation of Israel. And that's a picture that he's painting right here. Because look at what it says in verse number three. He said he took his brother by the hill in the womb. Jacob was trying to lift himself up when he was in the womb. He was trying to be the first one out. And so he grabbed his brother's heel, and that's why he got the name hill catcher or Deceiver because this guy was full of deceit from the very beginning. He was trying to, trying to steal his brother's inheritance when he was in the womb. And in his strength, he struggled with God. I mean, he did everything he could to get God on, to, be his, to be his genie. You remember what he said early on in his relationship with God? He said, look, I like you. I mean, you're pretty cool. You you can really do some miraculous things. I tell you what, I'll let you be my God if you promise to bless me. You remember him saying that? I mean, what a deal. I think all of us, were just like Jacob. And and to some degree, God does bless those who, who make him their God. But in his strength, he struggled with God. Jacob struggled with God. The nation of Israel was always struggling with God. The nation of Israel is still wrestling with God and struggling with God. He even struck, struggled with the angel, the angel of the Lord who is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, who is Lord, the God Almighty in fleshly form. He struggled with the angel and he prevailed. He prevailed in that struggle. He wrestled with God. Why did he prevail? He prevailed because he wouldn't give up. He was scared. His brother was coming, he thought, and probably he was, to kill him and take his wife and take his goods and, and take his inheritance back. And he was scared to death. And so he begged God and he saw the face of God at Peniel and he begged God and he wrestled with God and he won that battle. And God gave in to him, but what did God do first before he gave in? Before he gave him favor, what did God do? He crippled him. He crippled him. And that's what God's saying to the nation of Israel. I'm going to bring you back. We're struggling right now. We're wrestling right now. One day you're going to, you're going to be like Jacob. Things are going to be made right, but you're going to be crippled first. Guess what? You want to wrestle with God? And prevail with God, that's a good thing. But you're going to say uncle. You might prevail with God, but you're the one who's going to say uncle because God's going to cripple. God cripples us. I mean, I think all of us to some degree have been crippled in some ways so that we are even in a position to receive the grace of God. So Jacob is, is sort of a picture of us all. He took his brother from the very beginning by the hill in the womb, and he struggled. In his strength, he struggled his whole life with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel even and prevailed, and he wept and sought favor with him, and he, and he found him. Where did he find him at? He's kind of going, he's not doing this in chronological order. He him, found him at the house of God, at Bethel. That's what Beth, Beth is house, El is God. He found him at the house of God. Now, that, that place in the desert where Jacob found uh, God was not the literal house of God. Wherever you find God is the house of God. And he found him at the house of God, and there he spoke to us. God spoke to us. He spoke to us through Jacob. Because you see this ladder going up to heaven and the angels ascending and descending on that ladder, and that ladder represents a Jacob ladder, which represents none other than, than Jesus Christ. And look down at verse number 5. He says, that is the Lord, who did he find? Who did he, who, who spoke to him? That is the Lord of hosts. He, he saw those angels. The Lord of hosts, the host of angels, the Lord, the host of nations. Jehovah Sabaoth. I mean, there's some really, there's a lot of Jehovah's and Elohim's if you look at that in the Hebrew. He is Elohim Jehovah Sabiat. Jehovah Sabiat. The Jehovah is, is his name. Uh, the, the, his name forever. It's a memorial name. And there is no other God like Jehovah. And there is no other God but Jehovah. In verse number six, so you, by the help of your God, he's back talking to the nation of Israel. Just like Jacob found God at Bethel, he found the Lord of hosts, the Lord is a memorial; is His is his memorable name. He says, "So you, Hosea, is speaking now. By the help of your God, repent, repent, return, observe mercy, and, and He shows you how to repent. Observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. You want to know how to repent? There it is. You know, I love." The way he he defines repentance here in this verse. Because he doesn't just say repent or return. He says, You, by the help of your God, return. You know, all you've got to do, you know, repentance is not easy. It's not easy. Whenever we're going down a bad path, it's not easy to return. It's not easy to repent. It's not easy to change directions. But all you've got to do is make the choice and say, Lord, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm turning from whatever the sin I'm committing. I'm turning from this, this wrong thing I'm doing. If you're lost, I'm turning to God. I'm turning to you. And all you have to do is make that decision. And then God gives you what you need to repent because he's faithful. We saw in verse 12, even when we're unfaithful, all we have to do is give God a chance and turn and he will help us in our turning. And what's, what's it mean to turn? Look at, look at the middle part of that verse. First of all, it means to observe mercy and justice. In other words, to turn from doing evil, from lying and cheating, and stealing, and being merciless to people, to observing mercy and justice. That's what the law was all about. The law was about treating our neighbor as ourselves, about loving the Lord God with all our hearts, with all our minds. That's what the law was all about. And so we just turn towards what's good, and God will give us help to turn. God will change our hearts. I mean, as a New Testament believer, all we've got to do is give God a chance and, and say, Lord, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this sin. I want out of this. And if when we make that decision to repent, then the Lord will help us. And repentance also involves waiting on the Lord continually. In other words, We give up our our idols, and one of our idols is self-reliance. It's self-determination. We want to go where we want to go, do what we want to do, the way we want to do it, instead of trusting the Lord. And the Lord says, repent of doing that. Turn from that, and I'll help you. You know, being in a relationship with the Lord requires a lot of patience. It requires a lot of patience. I remember when I was a young believer, and and I still hear it now, I remember listening to Charles Stanley, and every time I was looking for a word, I heard, wait, 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 wait. And you know what I've learned over the years? Waiting on the Lord is synonymous with faith. In other words, you don't have faith If you're not willing to wait on the Lord, I mean, that's true faith. True faith is saying, Lord, okay, you're not going to do things the way I want you to right now. But you're going to do things for my good in your time. And all I have to do is wait on you and trust you because you can't trust if you don't wait. You can't really wait in joy if you don't, if you can't trust. They go hand in hand a big part of faith and, and I think every believer needs to repent and learn to wait on the Lord and that's difficult we live in a get it now want it now society and, and uh, God doesn't do things that way but here was Israel and they had encircled God with lies they didn't even know the Lord they didn't know what repentance was they had become as bad as the people that they had replaced in the promised land. Who did they replace in the promised land? The Canaanites. If I were to call you, I was trying to think of a really bad name to call you. I won't do it because we're we're on tape, but I'd do it if we weren't. But if I could think of one of the worst names I could call you, to an Israelite, maybe the worst name you could call them, you're a Canaanite. You're nothing more than a Canaanite. Look at verse number 7. You're a cunning Canaanite. Deceitful scales are in your hand. You love to oppress people. You use people. You You couldn't distinguish the Israelites anymore from Canaanites. I mean, they were worshiping pagan gods, and they were oppressing people, dominating the poor, doing anything to make a buck even cheating in their, with their scales. And verse number 8, and Ephraim said, surely I've become rich doing this. I'm not going to stop. I found wealth for myself in all my labors. This is a good deal. Deceitful scales are working fine with me, and they'd set their government up, kind of like we've set ours up to where evil prospers. And they you know, I found, I've become rich, and I've found wealth for myself and all my labors, they shall, and, and they shall find no fault or iniquity in me, uh, in, no iniquity that is sin. They shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. In other words, they're not going to catch me. It's not even considered sin anymore. I mean, it's not sin to go set up a, a payday check cashing place in Lafayette and charge people about a third of their check. I don't know what the, how much they charge, but it's a good bit to cash their check or to make a payday loan and charge them about 500% interest. You know, it's, it's only for, they only get it for like a week, but, and it's only like 10%, but you figure that you put that over and annualize that, and it runs way up its usury, and it's legal. It's legal, and they get away with it. It's sin in God's eyes, but it's legal. Or to rent somebody a computer for, for uh, $40 a month or $100 a month that they buy for $200 and rent it for a year. Think, Look at the profit, the usury there. They're getting on that. And it's legal. And, 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 and people don't see it as sin. There's no iniquity in it. They were oppressing people with deceitful things and and. And they didn't even see it as sin. It was legal. They were getting rich on it. There's a lot of other things. We could spend the rest of the night going through things like that. The deceit in our country. But, this is one of those bad buts. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt. Ever since I brought you out of the land of Egypt, I've been your God whether you know it or not anymore. But watch what he says. But I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. What feast is he talking about right here? He's talking about the feast of the tabernacles. When, When they celebrated the feast of the tabernacles, they built these little huts like they lived in in the wilderness. Now, why did God have them do that? Well, one reason he had them to do that was to remind them of his deliverance out of the land of Egypt where they had, ate the manna and they drank the water and, and they ate the quail and all of that was great. And you're reminded of God's deliverance. But there was something else God wanted to remind them of, how difficult that time was and living in the wilderness. And he wanted them to remember, to remember it so that they never went back to the wilderness again. And so they had these beautiful homes in Canaan, And he's saying right now, he said, hey, you're going back to the wilderness and you're going to live in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. Now you're not just going to live there for the days of the appointed feast; You're going to live in those places permanently. Those will be your new homes. You're going back to the wilderness. You're going out of the promised land and back to the wilderness. And this wasn't just a physical thing. This was a spiritual thing. Verse number 10, I have spoken by the prophets. And I have multiplied visions. I have given signs, symbols, through the witness of the prophets. So the Lord says, I've been speaking to you through the true prophets. And the true prophets have spoken to you my word, the word of God. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you judge a prophet? How do you judge whether somebody speaking the true word of God or they're speaking... A false word of God. Well, you judge them by the word of God that you already have. Now, they had the Torah. And the last thing they were given was the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, they were told that if you end up like the Canaanites, I will kick you out of the land. So all they had to do was look around and realize that they had ended up like the Canaanites. So here they had the false prophets who were telling them, hey, God doesn't care what you do. He's a God of love. And no matter what you do, you're going to get, you know, God's still going to love you. He's still going to bless you. You're still going to have prosperity. Prophets like that out there today. But does that line up with the word? No. Prophets like Amos and Hosea were telling the Israelites, there's Amos, you can use it there. The prophets like Amos and Hosea were telling them that, hey, you've crossed the line. God's cup of wrath is full, and God's about to judge the nation. And and they were backing that up with visions and signs. And more important, you know, maybe the most important thing, the witness of the prophets. The witness of the prophets. I mean you take a guy like Amos and you take a guy like Hosea these guys were were living like godly men and all of the corrupt priests in the temple were living like the rest of the world so whose witness do you take and they were speaking in power it was backed up with signs and wonders and, and and it was backed up by the word and so That's who they should have been listening to. And he says in verse number 11, he says, Though Gilead has idols, surely they are vanity. And they've got false prophets. Surely they're speaking in vain. Though they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the field. In other words, once the nation is destroyed, then all of those idols they're going to go in the trash pile with everything else and they're going to be plowed up in the furrows of the field just like all the other rubbish. Then he goes back to this picture of Jacob. He says, Jacob fled the country of Syria, fled to the country of Syria. Israel, he calls him Israel and Jacob here, Israel served for a spouse and for a wife he tended sheep. Now, here was Jacob. He had deceived his brother by deceiving his father. And what happened to old Jacob? You remember the story? He fell in love with Rachel, Laban's daughter, his uncle Laban's daughter. And he fell in love with her. She was the most beautiful thing in the world. She had an ugly sister, and she was the good-looking sister. And so you remember how Jacob had dressed up to look like Isaac? Well, Leah dressed up to look like Rachel on the night of his wedding night. And he took her into his tent and he had relationships with her and he was married to her. And he woke up the next morning and took, up, took off the veil. He went, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I've been bamboozled, just like I bamboozled my brother. And he served for seven years to get that ugly woman. And he still wanted Rachel, so he served Laban another seven years. And he finally got Rachel, and then he served Laban another seven years, and, and Laban would have kept him there forever if God hadn't delivered Jacob and told him to get out of the land and take your stuff and take your wife and get out of there and I'll protect you, go on. And so he fled back to his homeland. But who was there waiting for him when he got to his homeland? His brother Esau, who wanted him dead, who had promised made an oath that he was going to kill his brother when he ever, the next time he saw him. And so he went back and... and uh, who was orchestrating all of this? God. So he went back and that's where he wrestled with the Lord and that's where he went from being Jacob to becoming Israel, prince with God, instead of deceiver and hill catcher. And, and so God is saying a similar thing here. You've served, you've you've had this relationship with me for a period of time, and now you've been in the promised land, well, you're going to have another period of wilderness, probably a lot longer than the first period. But eventually, I'm going to nurture you, I'm going to bring you back through all of these struggles, and you're going to see the face of God. You're going to prevail, but it's going to be a while. Then he says in verse number 13, he says, in verse number 13, he says, by the prophet, who's he speaking of there? The Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. By Moses, the prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt by a prophet. And by a prophet, he was preserved. The the nation was preserved. And so he used the prophet Moses to lead them out of the land and to preserve them in the wilderness. And in Hosea's day, the next stage of the struggle was about to begin. Because look at verse number 14. He says, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore, the Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon himself and return his reproach upon him. In other words, they're about to be judged. This is the next stage of the struggle between Israel and God. They're about to be judged. But who did it? Did God, they did it to themselves, didn't they? The Lord says their bloodshed will be upon them. It'll be their own fault because they had forsaken the true and living God and they'd gone chasing after idols. And they'd made contracts with their very enemies. How stupid was that? Was that God's fault that they did that? No, it was their fault. Because if they were in a strong relationship with God, God and God, they were waiting on God, then they wouldn't have done that. Because God, God wouldn't have told them to do that. But they wanted to do things their way. Because their self, their pride in their own nation was one of their own idols. And so the guilt of their bloodshed is upon themselves, and I'm going to return their reproach upon them. God says, they hate me, I'm going to destroy them. And God didn't have to do a thing. They'd done it to themselves. But was God finished with them? No. For now, they were going to serve a foreign king. But just as God had led Jacob out from Laban and brought him back to the promised land. One day he's going to lead them out of their captivity, out of all the places where they've been scattered throughout the world, and they're going to be brought back into the land. And one day they're going to see the face of God. Now, all of that's a picture of us too. Before you go pointing fingers at Israel, I mean, hey, we're pretty carnal people we're pretty we do some pretty bad things ourselves and we struggle with god and we wrestle with god but thank goodness that jesus christ prevailed for us on the cross when we put our faith in jesus christ i mean we've we've pretty much ended that struggle although life is still a struggle but god promises to preserve us too and to bring us into the promised land in this life and in the life to come. And one day, you and I, when the struggle's over, even though we're crippled by that struggle, we'll see the very face of God when we look upon Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord's prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word and just the encouragement that's here. And, and, for us as individuals and for us as a nation, Lord, and uh, even for the nation of Israel, Lord, you're, you're so merciful and so gracious. and Lord, there's only one way that you can be just and the justifier of those who have sinned against you, and that's through the one you called up out of Egypt, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We just thank you for what he's done for us uh, in our lives. Lord, uh, uh, what he's done for us by dying for us on the cross. And, Lord, you're such a blessing to us. Help us to be a blessing to you. Help us to quit struggling with you and to rest in you, to rest in your promises, to wait continually on you. Lord, and those of us that struggle with waiting, Lord, I'll, I'll, as your word said here, says here tonight, Lord, if we'll just give you a chance and, and repent, Lord, of our selfishness and our impatience. Lord, you, your word promises that you'll help us in the process of learning to wait on you. And by waiting on you, Lord, we we say we love you. Help us to do that. Help us to be the kind of people you want us to be. We can only do that through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.